You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Paul Mavrides. Uh, his latest work you can find in the massive uh, collection from Fantagraphics, the Zap box set, doorstop, um, 500-page epic uh, collection, as well as uh, Revelation X, uh, Anarchy Comics, um, and a plethora of other stuff uh, filtered throughout uh, comics ephemera. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today, Paul. Hi, glad to be here uh, virtually. <laughs> the the wonders of modern technology. Yeah. Now, um, one of the things thinking about um, looking at your start in comics is um, you're substantially younger than a lot of your peers. Um, or at least like seven, eight, oh, I'm, ten I'm, years. Oh, I'm—I don't know, uh, ten to a dozen years uh, younger than uh, the original uh, set of folks that uh, create, basically hand created the feel uh, of underground comics. So I—I I was kind of considered the uh, next wave of it, but but I kind of attached myself to the original group somehow. <laughs> Which which kind of leaves me like you know in between them and uh, I don't know they love and rockets so it's easy for me to drop off most people's radar. It it must have been an odd time coming into it. Um, I'm not sure when you. Uh, maybe we could get a little bit of that background of when you got into underground comics. Um, like about how old were you when you first started seeing that kind of stuff? Oh, there's a there was a big jump between uh, actually discovering them and and and, and doing them. Maybe uh, I think I first came across them when uh, an older friend of mine, when I was still in high school, uh, he ran a, a local head shop. Uh, a a really challenging profession uh, back in the late 60s uh, in, in northern Ohio, and I was visiting him in his apartment one afternoon, and a UPS driver showed up with boxes of new comics from California, and and we tore them open and just kind of had our brains fall out the back of our head, because uh, it was the initial... Uh, shipment of of these things uh you know when they finally got uh, beyond the being sold out of the baby buggy stage at golden gate park uh, no, I... so, so i kind of like got overwhelmed all in one sitting by by this new uh type of comic book uh, that took no prisoners so uh but uh i actually had to move out to uh California in the mid seventies before I uh, met people actually doing them in in the business uh, and kind of slowly uh, quickly actually got got uh, into creating them myself. Had you been reading any other comics before that point? Yeah, I've always been a big uh, comic consumer, and when I was a kid. Uh, there were all kinds of comics, and I pretty much read most of them. Uh, I th- think I was kind of uh, not not 
also big on romance comics uh, put out by Marvel and DC. But uh, as a small child, I was fortunate to have a adult neighbor who had previously bought comic books every time his now grown up uh, grandchildren came to visit, and thus he had this huge collection of old Mad magazines uh, when they were still. Uh, comic books, ECs, uh, just all kinds of things, golden age books, and he gifted them to me. Uh, so I not only was, was uh, reading uh, contemporary books to my, my age group, but also got to go back 20 years, and my parents reacted as many parents did back in those days, and uh, took my comic books away uh, uh, and burned them, <laughs> uh, being worried about uh, their terrible influence on me, which of course was the completely wrong thing to do because on the spot I vowed to grow up and draw comic books. <laughs> if they had only left them alone, I might have become a senator or something. If they said, oh, this looks like a great hobby, you should get into yeah, this. Like, oh. uh, you know, my parents might have done everyone a favor. I shudder to think what kind of mischief I might have created in politics. <laughs> so were you uh, more or equally kind of drawn by that stuff as a, like, Kirby things you may have seen at that time? Oh, I don't know. I'm kind of self-taught, so uh, it was all kinds of comics, like I said. Any, anything from, you know, Kirby and uh, Kirby's old monster comics and, and superhero stuff to, you know, Mad with Wally Wood and, uh, and EC's uh, you know, newspaper strips, uh, things like Hal Foster's Prince Valiant and Walt Kelly's Pogo and on and on. Uh, and and I just would study them and copy them. And Also, I, I liked regular art, too. I mean, general uh, fine arts and museums, paintings, uh, advertising art. So I've always been uh, very uh, visually oriented. Now you did you go to any? You, actually, you said you're self-taught. Um, so, what kind of stuff were you producing before moving to San Francisco? Well, um, just kind of <clears throat> making my way. Didn't didn't uh, go to university or or anything like that. But uh, found found myself like you know working on numerous uh, oh political. Uh, type projects in media at the time, underground newspapers, and which eventually were, began to morph into what became known as alternative newspapers. Uh, slowly got learned my way around printing and the ins and outs of that, and uh, uh, you know all kinds of other graphic tricks and things. So and and you know was do were, was producing paintings and things. Uh, it took a while to. One of the hardest ends of this thing uh, has been like how to tell a story. 
easy to draw pictures, but uh, I kind of realized at a certain point uh, after many dead ends that one it was best if one had something to say. <laughs> it was immensely helpful. So, uh, but in order to do that, you have to kind of live a life in order to produce something to say. So I had to get that out of the way. So that was the choice to move to San Francisco. Well, it, mostly I wanted to move here because, uh, for one thing, it was the first place I ever encountered that uh, I could probably go out to the corner store for a quart of milk without finding myself thrown up against a police car at gunpoint, Jesus. As, as generally happened with kids with long hair at the, back then. Mm-hmm. You said you're from... Ohio. Ohio. Was it, like a, was it like a small town or? Akron. Oh, okay. And and my high school was a nest of uh, of uh, oh uh, future <laughs> future culture uh, hackers uh, in one way or another. Like uh, went to school with the mother's boss of Devo and. Uh, old friend of mine is Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders, so we were we were a real obnoxious bunch of kids. <laughs> <laughs> the school was glad to graduate us and get us out of their hair. <laughs> There's some. It, it's interesting how those kind of people you'd grow up around um, kind of feed into like later life stuff too. With Chrissy Hind being a big. Uh, yeah, well, a, a lot of people. Akron was a somewhat, uh, oh, average place, uh, and dull as can be with little to do uh, outside of the normal patterns of things. So uh, people in, you know, anybody that wasn't uh, willing to go for the regular pablum had to. We got good at entertaining each other, you know, which came in handy later when we had to entertain strangers. So, no. I mean, you know, in the mid-70s, Akron became noted for being some kind of a proto-punk scene, but, you know, uh, uh, people from New York would show up looking for the scene and soon discover that the scene was actually people playing music in each other's basements, not clubs. <laughs> Because there wasn't enough people around to like support actual clubs. Mm-hmm. It was a very tight knit scene. Yeah, pretty tight. I mean, anybody that wasn't uh, that was an outsider tended to know each other. It's a few hundred thousand people, but still a, a fairly large. Do you play any city. music yourself, or just just be drawing? <clears throat> oh uh, well, I was in a subgenius uh, band uh, that we formed. Uh, called the band that dare not speak its name, but uh, we kind of explored more the idea of a band rather than actually producing music like a band does. Uh, so our most triumphant set uh, was at a subgenius devival uh, that we held in San Francisco where you know, hundreds of people gave us a standing ovation for playing a seven-second set. Uh, we walked out, uh, hit two notes, and then destroyed our instruments. 
Um, so moving to San Francisco, um, how did you get in contact with uh, these underground folks that you'd been reading? Well, um, at, previous to the uh, moving here in 1975, I uh, had uh, I'd met the Fireside Theater. Uh, who were performing in Arizona, where I was living at the time, working for a uh, alternative paper called the New Times, okay. which, which you know, over the night by the 1990s, it turned into just basically a hideous uh, franchise that swallowed up uh, alternative papers across the country and turned them into entertainment magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, we were, uh, you know, probably the most radical paper in, in the state of Arizona. And, and uh, so I was uh, got to go to this show uh, with a journalist friend and met the fire sign. And one of them, uh, I think it was David Osmond, uh, said, oh, we, we have a friend in San Francisco, a cartoonist, Jay Kinney. Uh, here's his address if you ever go there. So the first thing I did was look up Jay, and and we hit it off, uh, and quickly became comics partners. Did where, you? Uh, did you both kind of have like a sit? Did you know his politics? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I was familiar with Jay's work, and it turned out he was uh, roommates at the time with Larry Todd, who had uh, done a comic. Doctor Atomic, mm-hmm. and uh, it was oddly uh, not too far from where I live at, at that time. Uh, there were a lot of underground, still a lot of underground comics people in the mission in this neighborhood. Uh, so uh, it wasn't. It was easy to like you know uh, just fall into the scene. Uh, <laughs> Jay and I. Uh, did a couple of small one-panel cartoons for the Berkeley Barb, which had still was still around back then. Uh, you know, kind of sputtering on its last last little breath of counterculture mm-hmm. over in Berkeley. But uh, you know, we did some comic uh, little one-panel gag cartoons on the JFK. Conspiracy, assassination conspiracy. Was this and, the cover up on the lowdown? Yeah, it was uh, the the earliest cover up lowdown cartoons, and so uh, we got an idea for a comic book and decided to pitch it to Rip Rip Off Press at, at that time, uh, still located here in in the Mission, and I was all excited uh, getting to meet. The, famous Gilbert Shelton and all, and, and uh, so I dragged every little sketchbook and doodle I had ever produced with me in this huge <laughs> wad of portfolio, and uh, we walked in and uh, with our, you know, reprint, two cartoons from the Berkeley Barb, and Gilbert was uh, shooting pool and uh, drinking a beer, and... <laughs> And and said, okay, what's up? And so we said, we want to do this X, Y, and Z comic, you know. And he, like, looked and said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was that easy, you know. Uh, he didn't even ask who I was. 
<laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, uh, and I was kind of like, well, don't you even want to look at my art? And he said, no, uh, you know, if Jay says you're okay, that's good enough for me. <laughs> and so I was kind of thrilled and let down at the same time. <laughs> just, just say it's good. You know, just that was entirely, look. like, too easy. <laughs> I thought, you know, well, you know, huh, hippie business. Well, what do you know? So, uh, you know, uh, at the time, Rip Off Press had an interesting way of uh, producing their books. They actually ran a syndicate, uh, which provided weekly or monthly material, comic material to alternative and undergrad papers, maybe like uh, somewhere between three and four hundred uh, scattered across the U.S., and the theory was that uh, it would create a deadline uh, for the cartoonist to produce on a schedule, and it would also give a way for the press to pay the cartoonist as they worked. And additionally, it would uh, eventually produce a book worth of material uh, when so much time had passed. Oh. So, so that's how they worked for a while. Because generally, uh, underground comics is a very laissez-faire type of, uh, of format. Uh, you know, the cartoons would go off, get high, uh, come down, draw something whenever they felt like it, and eventually stagger in with a book, which would then be published without like any advanced press or anything. So the publishing schedule is was basically whenever the artist felt like doing something. Now ripoff was kind of amazing uh, when you think about how the businesses are run now. And that's probably part of why you guys were able to publish it so quickly is because you actually had something there ready, or <clears throat> yeah. Well, uh, what we uh, Jay and I did was we would do these series of one-panel cartoons on a variety of different. Uh, actual political uh, conspiracies or cover-ups. And we would research it and have uh, footnotes so that, you know, even though we were doing a simple-minded cartoon, people could go and actually research the background that we were drawing drawing our work from. Uh, But it also meant we had to be very picky because there was a six-week delay in between uh, and potentially up to three months where, uh, you know, we ran into a couple of, of occurrences where the subject matter died before the subscriber papers could even run the thing. So we had to get stuff that was timely, but not too timely mm-hmm. since because of this great delay. What were some of the topics, like you mentioned JFK assassination, what was some other stuff that you would uh, Oh, we into? covered uh, FBI and uh, American Indian move, movement uh, uh, conflicts, uh, you know, nuclear power plants, uh, other assassinations, uh, ecology uh, stories, uh, any number of things where where something had happened and then uh, you know, there were suspicions raised about the official story. And, and, this... and 
and when we had a, a half a book's worth of material for those, we came up with two stories to fill out the other half of the book, and and did a interesting centerfold. We it was a flip book, so um, the front half was facing one way, and then the back half of the book faced uh, upside down. So we had two covers, uh, and in the center was a pull-out Mobius strip uh, a diagram of the overarching world conspiracy that was kind of a horizontal flowchart of interconnectedness. Oh, Jesus. So there actually was no top or bottom to the conspiracy, and you could twist <laughs> our chart into a Mobius strip, so it was unending and continuous. <laughs> it's like this is give up hope type thing. <laughs> yeah, and we had included just about anything we could think of. It, it took us a solid month to create that thing. <laughs> um. From there, um, how did Anarchy Comics come about? Oh, well, uh, sitting around doing that, uh, the idea occurred. Jay was uh, pretty active, and he got a germ of an idea for Anarchy Comics. And I was right there, so we were off on and running on that one. And it dovetailed neatly also into the growing punk scene here. Uh, we were both kind of getting fed up with, with the <laughs> obviously decaying hippie uh, hippie culture and, and its faux radicalism. So it's kind of an interesting. We, we prefer to go straight to where like kids were like running headfirst into brick walls for fun, which <laughs> made more sense to us. It's an interesting time for you to be doing this too, because politically it was. I guess, like, all hope was lost. Uh, like, that 60s euphoria was just destroyed by the Nixon administration and the fallout from that. Um, yeah. Well, uh, and there was an element of, of, of you know, it, like, but like all, all of those so-called youth movements, there were... There, there were elements of, uh, you know, progressive, radical politics in it, and at the other end, nihilistic, who cares, and in between, just people liking the music and didn't really care about anything else, and so on. So it, it, there was a lot of wiggle room around in there. We decided to focus on anarchy as a, as an actual political concept, and not not necessarily pro and con but uh we also editorial uh, you know made our editorial choices on uh, on this anthology but by trying to come up with different angles you know some straight out historical comics some humorous ones which Jay and I mostly covered um other people you know Things that you know. So each piece explored a different aspect of anarchy as a political philosophy. Uh, we stayed away from just playing, you know, the chaos yeah. uh, that most people associate with the word. So, you know, because that's easy. You know, going with that down that road, you could pretty much shoehorn anything into anarchy. Uh, 
and we felt there was more than enough of that going around. Were you heavily involved in the editorial process at that point? For the uh, a little bit at the beginning. Like I said, I was still like learning my way around. Because uh, one of the but uh, you know as it got going, yeah, eventually the last issue, uh, I, Jay had uh, decided he was kind of getting tired of comics, and uh, so I edit. Uh, I was the editor of the last issue. We did four in all. Because one of the interesting things about um, about Anarchy Comics was um, not only did you have more women than most of the other kind of underground comics anthologies at that point, but you also had the international stuff. Uh, yeah, that was we... purposeful or just kind of. No, it was purposeful. We went out of our way uh, to seek out people like that, mm-hmm. and like I said, some people got their noses bent, you know, because, you know, they wanted to do a crazy anything goes anarchy comic, and, you know, uh, we weren't choosing them, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we we were, like, going for, uh, you know, uh, syndicalists in France, you know, and so on, so uh, they kind of, you know, and at that point, though, it was like there were plenty of comic books to get your work published in, so uh, people weren't being shut out of the only book in town or anything. We we definitely had our own vision, and we kind of stuck to it. What now? The Kennedy assassination seems to come up uh, multiple times for you creatively. Uh, what is it about that particular event that stands out? Oh, I. And, uh, when it happened, uh, oh, I, must, <laughs> I was uh, 11 years old, so I kind of just went with, uh, went along with what was going on and thought, oh, conspiracy nuts when Mark Blaine's name came up and so on. And then, uh, like I said, I was working on this paper in the early 70s in Arizona and met a number of uh, actual serious journalists uh, uh, working in in the underground press and and even some of the mainstream press and made friends with them and some of them became involved in researching uh, the Kennedy assassination and others Uh, and uh, I had the opportunity. I think the real eye-opening moment for me came when the University of Tucson Medical Center held a symposium, uh, a forensic pathology symposium, of uh, the actual pathologists involved in the JFK and uh, RFK and Martin Luther King assassinations and brought them to the medical hospital uh, for a three-day lecture series. And one of them, Cyril Wacht, brought an actual first-generation print of the Zapruder film, which at that time was owned by Time Magazine, which wouldn't let copies go out. Uh, So pirate copies were floating around that were looked like they'd been shot through wax paper on on the moon. You couldn't really tell anything uh, from anything, and 
notoriously Life magazine even went so far as to switch frames of the film around when they published them and so on. So uh, he had brought this uh, 8mm Super 8 copy struck right from the negative uh, in Times Vault uh, with him to, and donated it to the school. And as a reporter for the New Times, I got to access that after the after the gathering. And I spent three days going over the film on a moviola and, oh, wow. and, uh, and kind of con- became convinced that uh, the official story of where the gunfire came from was not as it was, as it was being told. And and uh, with my sense of humor uh, dovetailing in, that kind of made it easy fodder. In fact, uh, my, almost my first real publishing job was doing uh, uh, full-page illust- chapter illustrations for a book a friend wrote on the Kennedy assassination called The Assassination Please Almanac. Uh, his name was Tom Miller. Uh, so that was that even predated, I think, Cover Up Lowdown. So were you like but slowing, much. slowing it down you, to watch the the footage slower and? Yeah, you could just go frame by frame with it. In fact, I had to spend the first day uh, just getting over. Uh, being shocked by uh, by its graphic nature, uh, it's it's quite clearly a detailed film of of uh, a man having his head blown apart by a by a by a round. Uh, so uh, you know, it's just getting used to it. So you can, so I could dispassionately study trajectories and things. You know, and get over just going. Oh my God! Because you know, it's a hor- horribly violent little bit of film. Yeah, I mean, it's and, not just a, the... a very real one too. Not a not a movie effect at all. And, well, it's and like... it, it, seeing that sort of thing was in this. It seems trivial now, but in in this age of YouTube videos of heads being sawed off. Yeah. Uh, but back then, seeing such types of things in in ordinary life were highly uh, unusual. It's also not just the violence of it, but it's also like the like seeing how Jackie O, just like how that affects her and the situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it really took you know like repeated viewings to be able to step back and go, okay, what am I really looking at here now that. You know, I've gotten this emotion out of the way. Now, um, the Churches of Genius, I don't know if I'm really, like, doing good linkages here, uh, from Kennedy to this. Um, oh, it's it's all of a continuous... <laughs> it does feel... Hideous pattern. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you got involved pretty early on as um, doing a lot of the, the design work? Well, uh, boy, uh, early uh, proselytizer, as it were, uh, which <laughs> is all one could really humbly do back in those days. Um, 
Oh, how did how did it come about? Uh, I was at Ripoff Press. The 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 Ivan Stang and Philo Drummond, who lived in Dallas, uh, had of course met Bob at that point, and were thinking about taking the church public with a book. But uh, being amateurs, uh, uh, and despite Bob's salesmanship, uh, they had very little idea about how to go about this. Uh, so their their scheme was to create uh, the first subgenius pamphlet, this mind-blowing, cynical, uh, satirical, uh, you know, bomb blast, basically, uh, twelve in 12 pages. Uh, they produced this pamphlet as a... Um, pitch to publishers mm-hmm. you know like here's our pamphlet and the book will be like this that was their plan yeah but they didn't really know any publishers so they just sent it out randomly to 300 publishers ripoff press was one of them and uh, i was at work one day and and kind of had this oh yeah Young guy versus old school uh, counterculture relationship with the president of Ripoff Press, who stopped, uh, who began wondering if I could be trusted once he saw that I went from having uh, Phineas Freak type hairstyle, came in the next day, one day with like a crew cut, wearing a suit, (laughs) and. It <laughs> uh, really made him suddenly feel old and unsure of his own future. Uh, so we had that kind of uh, back and forth relationship. But I was in his office, uh, and and he was opening his mail, and he opened the the pamphlet up and glanced at it a second and went, "What a bunch of uh, crap!" and threw it in his waste basket. So just out of curiosity to see what made him uh, so dismissive, I pulled it out. And my honest reaction was that it was the funniest thing I had ever read in my life. And I immediately started like just laughing and laughing and walked out of his office reading it. And that, that irritated him to no end. He had thrown this thing away that I immediately declared was the best thing ever. <laughs> Uh, and what I did was I immediately like sent them money and and uh, for more pamphlets, uh, and and that was where the scheme initially backfired. Uh, what they ended up inadvertently doing was actually, rather than getting a publishing deal, they created the actual uh, Church of the Subgenius Cult uh, because what all the journalists and people like me did and book publishers who had their hands on this thing, we joined the church. <laughs> so before long, there were hundreds of people that were actual members. They had, they had foolishly put a membership application in there. <laughs> so uh, and, and then the first meeting came about when all of us, uh, you know, scattered everywhere across the U.S. and then some all decided to go to Dallas to meet each other. Whether uh, Ivan and Philo liked it or not, (laughs) 
So they had no choice but to hold the first subgenius convention because we would have all just stayed in their front yards otherwise. <laughs> now, Kim, and that took place in 1981, I believe, very early in 1981. And, 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 at that, by, and with that, it became easy to get a book deal for the first the book of the subgenius. Uh, which ended up being published in a million editions by Simon and Schuster. It's still in print. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was it about the uh, the philosophy that that pulled you in so intently? Um, take no prisoners. <laughs> you get to make it up. Uh, you could believe in anything and. And also dismiss everything, uh, and so on. It was kind of a, a write your own ticket uh, philosophy. Now, Kim Deitch's brother was involved with it. Was he around at that point? Um, one of his, I think, it Seth or Simon. He was Ahmed Fisher. Yeah, yeah. Um, I he didn't. I did. In fact, I may still have not physically met him, uh, although my memory is foggy, but uh, I, I did know his, his older brother, Kim, at that uh, by then, because uh, mm -hmm. at the time I moved to the Bay Area, Kim was still living in Berkeley. Uh, so I, when, uh, when I first got here, I took the opportunity to just meet all my heroes, or, or at least my favorite cart underground cartoonist authors. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, made friends with Escalate Wilson in Spain and the normal crew of, of folks that stand out. Um, Seth, uh, you know, sent in material for the book, so uh, that's uh, a lot of the folks I, I later met over the years. Uh, I came across their names that way at first. And I set myself up as an apostate uh, early on, so, the, you know, I mean, it was like perfect, the, a religion that I could hate and tear down, uh, <laughs> even while I was building it up. Uh, so consequently, when we had our first major live uh, revival here in San Francisco that hundreds of people attended, uh, we plotted out and assassinated our leader, J.R. Bob Dobbs, live on stage in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and, and in fact, it helped the church, which uh, up till that point, it, its memberships had started to lag. And by killing Dobbs, uh, suddenly, like, uh, all, everybody's interest in the group tripled. <laughs> So, a lot so we, and that was also, you know, like, well, uh, you know, uh, the traditional religious path, you know, the leader gets killed, the uh, apostles uh, start divvying up the territory and having internecine uh, sectarian warfare and so on, and it's all just for the satirical mill. A lot of it uh, strikes me as kind of... Uh, recovery or rejection of just the the weird cultishness of the 60s and early 70s, all the weird little religious cults. 
that yeah exactly up. there was a lot of that going on at the time too with uh, deep programmers and Raj niches uh, trying to poison entire towns in Oregon and uh, of course here in San Francisco we had Jonestown mm-hmm. uh, and that was one of the interesting things we did at the Devival where we assassinated our EPOP uh the the audience was confronted by nurses uh offering little uh paper cups with drawn from a huge galvanized metal tub of purple Kool-Aid <laughs> and you know we're told they had to drink it before they went in <laughs> Yeah, and this immediately, you know, uh, well, this is San Francisco. Does it have LSD or cyanide in it? <laughs> or is it just Kool-Aid? <laughs> so some people were really, you know, getting quite upset, and other people were going, can I have an extra cup? <laughs> now, I read somewhere you were also involved in um, the Survival Research Laboratories. Yeah, I, you know, uh, among other things uh, I did, I mean, I'd draw the Freak Brothers at the daytime and then spend all night out at punk clubs and that whole scene, which was uh, roaring along here. And uh, through that group, of course, uh, I, I met uh, Vale, uh, who had, uh, V. Vale, who had, uh, famously put out an early punk zine called Search and Destroy mm-hmm. and then decided to shift gears to a new magazine, Research, which I was able to get in on the ground floor of partially probably uh, through my own skills and also by being able to offer the resources to rip off press graphic uh, department to, to all these punk projects at nighttime involving camera oh, work okay. and layout and typesetting. Uh, and through that, uh, I got to know Mark and Matt Heckert and a fair number of other people in the scene like Jello Biafra. I didn't even uh, know the role that that you had played with Ripoff. In that, like, research is a big, important thing for me as a counterculture-type interviewer. Um, it's, you know pretty cementing of, of what I want to do, or what I try yeah. to do. Yeah, a poor rip-off press. Uh, you know, bless their souls. Uh, <laughs> was actually, you know, a, a benefactor of a lot of punk projects and alternative groups in the city uh, via my own <laughs> uh, peripatetic uh, wandering through the scene. But, uh, yeah, I... I did one sh- worked on one show with uh, that SRL did, where I got Jim Osborne, Jim Osborne, and I did giant photorealistic black and uh, gray tone chalk drawings of California Highway Patrol photos of grizzly uh, auto rack photos you know, with mangled bodies and and shredded cars and stuff. Uh, It was for a show celebrating the uh, 
anniversary of the publication of Ballard's Crash, and and it was strangely arranged at the front of uh, a, a pier at which the back of, at which the back of the pier had uh, public image performing. Oh, and so we had these, you know, so the suburban audience of pill fans had to wander through this. <laughs> what horrorscape of uh, wrecked, uh, actual physical wrecked cars uh, uh, hooked together with pistons copulating with each other while bodies were draped across it and our artwork and burning motor oil smells. And, and the memorable part of the whole event was that Public Images uh, manager uh, came up to us and told us that John Lydon thought our work was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and I often get that uh, get that effect. My first uh, art show that I was involved in, in, in I think, 1979 at an art gallery in San Francisco called Jet Wave was uh, a show I co- uh, co-curated with a friend, uh, Doug Wellman, uh, and and the theme it was a one-day art show, and the theme was the Kennedy conspiracy, the JFK conspiracy, and we had it on November twenty-second, and uh, the premise of the show was we were celebrating the anniversary of the performance art piece of the Kennedy assassination as committed by the artist collective The Conspiracy. And, and so, I mean, the crowning uh, crowning uh, piece in the show uh, had to be the little uh, electric car track uh, that had a little limousine uh, uh, on it uh, that was going round and round with JFK and Jackie sitting in it. Uh, going through a little model Dealey Plaza, and there was a uh, mound of of astroturf and some BB rifles, and the audience could like snipe at the little limousine as it went round and round, uh, and uh, so on. So we had a lot of this uh, type type of work piled up. Yeah. I did black velvet paintings of the Ted is the Bruder film, and. My takeaway moment was when Paul Krasner, uh, who did The Realist, came. And uh, and in The Realist, he had gotten quite famous himself for pretending to uh, publish what he called uh, the parts left out of the William Manchester book on the Kennedy assassination, one of which hit the mainstream news when he made up a story about how LBJ copulated with Kennedy's head wound on the uh, in, in the plane going back to Washington D.C. So, so the guy who made that up came up to me in the middle of our show and said he thought our our whole show was in really poor taste. <laughs> and I, you know, that just made me beam. You know, it was like when my heroes uh, of pushing the limits come up and say, you've gone too far. I know I'm, my work is done. <laughs> so really nothing sacred to you. 
Uh, not a lot, but uh, actually there is, uh, you know, because I like to pretend that there's a lot of serious themes uh, that run through my stuff that really do direct people to reflect on on things. You know, I tr- when I do push the envelope, I try to do it for a reason and, mm-hmm. and not simply to push buttons because that's the easiest, lowest hanging fruit is to just go somewhere mindlessly, you know, and, and be offensive. But to do it with a, a purpose, you know, to, you know, connect a dot in people's heads, it's kind of like, uh, oh, going over the edge is what gives them something to think about after the experience. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a little tiny thing in their head that gnaws at their certainties uh, until, you know, it claws its way through and opens up a, a new path. It's, it's you know, it can backfire. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's a high-wire act, generally. Now, tell me... But I like high-wire acts. You were also, at some point, involved with the residents as well? Yeah. Um... Worked on uh, kind of a computer graphic comic strip that was on a, D- a CD-ROM. Mm-hmm. Talk about ancient tech. None of my computers can even play this thing anymore. <laughs> uh, but they got a bunch of different cartoonists to work on it. Uh, and this the project and album was called uh, Bad Day on the Midway. Uh, it was basically designed and uh, co-created by a departed friend, Jim Ludke, who was an early uh, computer graphic uh, fellow. Uh, and he pulled in under a variety of underground cartoonists to work on it. We each took a song that the residents had done and uh, that had a backstory, and we did a little comic about the backstory. Okay. Uh, I came in late, so mine had the least uh, flair to it. Uh, uh, the rest of, uh, of the contributors were lucky, and there was enough time to do little animations and things that you know, really took advantage of the computer medium. Mine was basically just a slideshow, unfortunately. But like I said, who cares? Nobody can even play it anymore. <laughs> it's, it's interesting how these artifacts kind of stay behind. It's yeah. kind of like from a certain point in time and then inaccessible. Well, they do, they do what they were intended to do and then the whole parade moves on. Uh, yeah. It's pop culture uh you know the the strange thing is where it it ends up becoming <laughs> somehow embedded and and it takes on its own continual life uh you know generally these things really are designed to be ephemeral even though they're meant to have lasting impact now um tell me about getting involved with um with Gilbert Shelton on um, the the Freak Brothers. Um. Curious story. Uh, yeah. Um, at the time uh, when I first moved here, uh, I lived in Berkeley for the first uh, three and a half years or four, 
And at the time, Berkeley had just, uh, I, I arrived at the tail end of uh, a multi-year drought, not unlike the one we're having now. And my apartment, when the drought broke, uh, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And one uh, day, going about cleaning my apartment, I discovered that everything in my apartment facing away from the sun had mildewed, had black mildew all over it. Oh, Jesus. I weirded out, you know, I mean, all my LPs had mold on them. I had to wash every single one. It was just like being in a David Lynch movie. And uh, But I had all this art on paper, and I was terrified that it was all going to be destroyed. Although, looking at it now, I maybe it should have been. Uh, but I took it over to Ripoff Press and asked them if I could uh, use their 13,000-square-foot warehouse uh, to spread out the artwork on and get it into light and uh, kill the mildew off. And they said, sure. Uh, so while the stuff had been uh, sitting there for a month, drying out and, and uh, being denuded of mold, Gilbert had the opportunity to walk around and look at it. And so uh, not long after that, uh, he approached me one afternoon and uh, asked me to help him out with the art. And uh, so we did the first story together where uh, he wrote it and both, we both drew, drew it. And uh, past that point, uh, we began writing the stories together um, and did a, did a few stories together. It came out with a book, uh, decided at that point to bring Dave Sheridan back in. Uh, and the second we did that, Gilbert left. <laughs> he, like, moved to Spain and wouldn't talk to anybody. Uh, and it retreated, and Dave and I were sitting there getting paid for doing nothing. And uh, that situation wasn't good. <laughs> Even I could see that. Yeah. As much as I liked being paid for nothing. It can't uh, continue forever. It it can't continue like this. So uh, and Gilbert would talk to me. Uh, he had no problem talking to me. He just was uh, kind of taking, declaring his own breather. And uh, so I suggested to Rip Off Press that uh, you know I kind of thought, well, I'd like to go to Europe too. Maybe I can get Rip Off Press to send me. No, they'll never fall for anything that transparent. <laughs> But, you know, I'll ask him anyway. So I went into work the next day and said, hey, uh, I bet I could, like, go over there and write stories with Gilbert, and Dave and I can draw them when I come back. And and instead of being tossed out of the office like I expected, I was asked, How, when, when can you leave? Can you leave today? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I couldn't because I didn't even have a passport. So I had to go get a passport, and then I went over to Barcelona, and and uh, we produced a book's worth of stories. I uh, came back with them. Dave and I barely started to work on them, and then it turned out he was went, went to the doctor over a backache, which turned out to be cancer. Mm -hmm. 
And within a month of that, he was gone. Holy. So, uh, at that point, you know, I kind of finished up the book by myself, uh, following the stories uh, that Gilbert and I had produced. And Gilbert did all the lettering, so we had to draw these things and then paste the lettering down on the, on the actual pages. Um, which was enough to make most people think Gilbert had worked on the art, too. Uh, but Gilbert ended up moving back. Uh, we, decided, we did a few more, uh, another book's worth of stories, and then we decided to do a long, uh, a long one, uh, now known as a graphic novel called The Idiots Abroad, mm-hmm. uh, because we're sitting around, and Gilbert said, what should... What do you like to draw? You know, we should just draw something that we like to draw. And I said, I like to draw everything. But what I don't like to draw is the Freak Brothers' living room. I'm tired of drawing their school table. Let's get them out of the house. <laughs> so we did. We sent them around the world uh, a couple of times uh, in that story. And it took, it took us six years to do it. Wow. And... Uh, I got sent to Europe over and over and over to work on <laughs> Gilbert, to my delight. Uh, especially so when he moved to Paris, which I had never considered uh, visiting. And now, dearly love. <laughs> it's got to be. But tough you know, sometimes. I always felt very privileged. It was kind of like, you know, guys that like drew Marvel comics set in Paris. They couldn't get Marvel to, like, send them to Paris. No. <laughs> but the heavy comic company I worked for sent me to Paris without blinking. <laughs> I guess it was just you had that good connection that they couldn't have and were able to get it that. Was, uh, it was, you know, uh, it's whatever it takes to get, get the comic book out. Yeah. And That's I awesome. wasn't staying at a four-point hotel or anything. Uh, but you know it was it was fun and and it also kind of you know we we had you know a, a wider perspective on, on the characters and got to expand the territory uh, that they lived in now this kind of this, this working with gilbert it was your kind of in for being brought into the zap fold um well, it didn't hurt. <laughs> uh, you know, it got me up there uh, as as a known quantity and and uh, 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 you know uh, a, a steady producer uh, and and a, a like-minded uh, crank, <laughs> which was important. Um, <laughs> And I, I, I was friends with all those guys. Uh, one of the, uh, another thing that was a factor in, in, uh, my being chosen, I suspect, was my fight with the California Sales Tax Board over First Amendment cartoonist rights mm-hmm. that, uh, basically knocked me out of the comic field, uh, during the, Six years it took for me to win and, and back the state down. Uh, so I, 
kind of took a bullet for the team, uh, the greater team, uh, yeah. as it were, the entire comic field uh, in all its permutations. Is that why uh, you did a uh, pinup for Spawn? Uh, that was, yeah, that was one of the <laughs> one of the, one of my strategies was to spread. Uh, well, you know, one it was kind of like I was amused to even be asked, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, but it was also to like you know uh, pull in as many different types of publishers into direct contact with myself as possible, mm-hmm. so that there would be bright lines uh, in what the state was trying to do, uh, straight to where people actually were making real money and would have been uh, even the big guys would have been seriously impacted. The state was looking at a windfall in the first year if they had gotten away with this of an extra eight hundred million dollars. Jesus. You know, in the lightest level of estimate, uh, for back taxes on major businesses. If they could get past me. <laughs> which uh, where we were fighting about nine hundred dollars. Yeah. But, but I kind of uh, at my first audit I told the sales tax people that even if they dropped a bill on me for a dime, I wasn't going to pay it because of the First Amendment principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, they were Board of California, the sales tax people, after years of leaving cartoonists alone as, as authors, suddenly declared that cartoonists couldn't be authors because their pictures didn't qualify as an artist's manuscript. Uh, but were instead merely a printing template, and therefore all the income that the cartoonists earned from publication, they owed sales tax on. And any transaction involving that in either direction in, uh, would produce as well a use tax. So that put everybody in the rest of the United States in jeopardy and all the newspaper comics and so on, and, and animated cartoons, the state really thought it was something to something. Yeah. Um, there was a parallel case fought out years before uh, where the state tried the same tactic with the music industry and tried to bill uh, sales tax on Neil Young and Joni Mitchell's earnings off their off their music and because of the transferal of a master tape uh to the rec uh, record manufacturing Jesus. side of things and they fought it out and uh you know uh the courts threw out the state's reasoning and uh they had to leave the music people alone but the curious thing about regulations are they're haphazard and they don't have to apply logically across the board. So you can have, and, and, and there's a reason for that, you know, because all industries are different. So the same definitions might not necessarily apply, even though they didn't in the case of comics and music. But I still had to fight it out. Uh, it cost a lot of money and took up my time and made my hair turn white. And, and made me into a pedantic, didactic bore at comic conventions. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. 
I think, but like uh, I said, we we defeated them uh, in in uh, in the final arguments, and then went a step further and got the legislature to adjust the law. So, but at the end of it, I came out kind of sick of comics. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, like uh, the 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 growing comics industry had suddenly gone into a contraction, and you know you couldn't make nearly the comic sales dropped. You couldn't make uh, comic stores were going out of business. You couldn't make as much money doing them, and uh, so there was all that. Uh, and at that exact moment, poor. Uh, Rick Griffin, another friend of mine, and a even probably earlier art hero uh, from my teen years of, of staring at his concert posters and album cover work, uh, had his unfortunate motorcycle accident and opened up a hole in the zap that hadn't been filled. And then uh, Robert and uh, Crumb and Victor Moscoso had their famed uh, fist fight, <laughs> so uh, causing Robert to swear he was quitting, and suddenly it became uh, paramount for a new cartoonist to be selected. And I think all these different factors contributed to, uh, since I was friends with everybody in the group, but apparently was the only person everyone could agree on. <laughs> I was reading so I like got... uh, Muskoka wanted uh, Manera. Hmm? Muskoko was suggesting Monera or Mobius at that point. Well, a lot of people's names came <laughs> up. There, there were, uh, you know, and there has always been uh, apparently a push-pull between uh, Robert, who wanted to open up the book to everyone, and some of the other people, like uh, in the book, who wanted to keep it an exclusive. Uh, yeah. That. I know. So, uh, uh, you know. Uh, there, there, there were. There's a lot of people who could have slotted in. Uh, so I actually do feel honored to have uh, been invited into the group, just as the bar, the no host bar, shut down and everybody was asked to go home. <laughs> I know uh, George Metzger had told me that in the '70s, Crumb had asked him, but then they went with Robert Williams instead. And it's interesting. Mm. Just that whole yeah. And he's like, I, I don't blame them. <laughs> well, being the youngest guy in the bunch, maybe I'll outlive everyone, and then I'll get to make up my own stories. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and nobody will be around to challenge him. Now, tell me about um, working in the jams um, together and kind of what that process is like, because they're... I see a lot of modern comic jams. And someone does a panel, someone does a panel. You know, you all pass around panels. Where those look like um, just everyone is in one panel. Yeah, there's... Well, in the days before I got there, uh, it was... A lo everybody lived within reach of each other. Uh, even, even if they were in L.A., for instance like Robert. So it was a lot easier for the group to just go into the same room. Generally, it was at Wilson's apartment because he had a long wooden table that accommodated all of us. And uh, 
you know, just slap down a page, rule out the panels, uh, and start drawing. Um, in later years, we couldn't get the whole group, you know, when I joined up, the whole group wasn't always present. Uh, Gilbert couldn't, wasn't going to fly over just to do a jam, for instance, from Paris, and then Crum had moved the, uh, over to France as well, and so on. So, um, one method, and, and uh, the pages, even in the earlier days, um, the pages ended up uh, being done in three to four layers of panels, and those were cut into strips, horizontal strips, so that every instead of wait, you know, with just two pages, and so yeah. that six people would have to wait for the other two to draw something. Uh, which is really the most boring thing in the world is to watch somebody else draw. It's like watching somebody else tap on a keyboard computer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, by cutting the pages up, then everybody could just pass them around back and forth, and, and that increased the density and the insanity able to be wedged into every every square um, and, you know, in the event of uh, some people being, like, say, in France, uh, you could then simply ship the uh, thing up to be finished. You'd leave holes open here and there, and then the people that weren't present could simply fill that in. Uh, it's kind of developed into this cruel twist where the person who is most remote to the group got tagged to somehow make sense in the last panel out of every random thing we had generated, the rest of us had generated. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, Gilbert had to do it a couple of times, and, and to his credit, he did a wonderful job of tying up this nonsense into something that almost seemed like it made sense. <laughs> <laughs> But um, it really did have the feeling of, you know, I, I, I think that's what I miss the mo uh, most and always will about the group was just sitting around with, with uh, my pals drawing this weird stuff because it's what we like to do. Was it intimidating at all when, like, um, you're in this room of, like, of such forces? No, by that point, no. No. <laughs> uh... It was intimidating when I first sat down with Gilbert, and and I even, you know, one after I think my first afternoon said, "Well, you know, I'm only going to do this once, so uh, please uh, allow this. I'm going to gush for five minutes, and then I won't ever do it again." Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, went, oh, I can't even believe I'm sitting here. Yeah, and then Gilbert went, "Yeah, yeah, okay." Let's get to work and yeah. say, okay. Right, boss. Shut up and draw. <laughs> now, your most recent stuff I've been seeing is um, the paintings you've been doing with the uh, the thrift store paintings you pick up, and then you'll paint over them. Yeah. Um, tell me about well, about kind of where that came from. Well, uh, after my tax case, I got involved with. Uh, art directing and really being so involved that uh, the director, Ron Mann, uh, 
admitted that I probably should have gotten co-direction credit on a feature film documentary produced in Canada called Grass, which was the history of uh, recreational marijuana prohibition in the U.S. And I worked on, I got basically selected precisely because uh, even though I watched a million movies, I had never actually made one, so I had no idea how to make a movie. And, mm. and thus, that got me the job. <laughs> uh, uh, and a poor-paying job it was indeed. Uh, spent three years on, on the project, and it's a feature film, uh, probably even available to watch on tiny pirate YouTube videos. Uh, but uh, we did that. Uh, it came out in 2000, and uh, just in time for uh, the dot-com boom where I was living to implode, and, uh, taking out all my uh, paying work for uh, for in the tech end of things uh, because I was an earlier early adopter of computers and uh, worked computers into a lot of my art uh, past the year 1987 as graphic tools. So unlike, unlike, you know, pretty much most of the people in Zap, for instance, I know how to turn a computer on and off. <laughs> uh, but be that as it may, uh, I was kind of fishing around for, you know, what about now what? And uh, I noticed, uh, you know, reading juxtaposed, I noticed a disturbing pattern where artists who had spent a long time developing unique styles of, of visual representational artwork were basically being, their work was being hijacked by corporate art directors from places like Target, mm-hmm. and and they would just borrow this artist's style so that Target would seem cutting edge, you know, put it up everywhere, uh, basically blow out the poor artist's uh, credibility without giving them any money, and then move on to the next thing a month later. And I kind of thought, geez, you know, this is, <laughs> I'm an appropriationist, but this is out of hand. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, these giant guys really, you know, are shameless now. And uh, so I kind of thought, well, what can I appropriate that's such a basic act of appropriation that everyone already does it? So the only thing they can appropriate is my attitude, and most of them wouldn't go near near that with a 100-foot pole. Uh, And and it occurred to me, text over image. Uh, You know, but I also was reacting to the new net concept of all content is free. Yeah. You know, so consequently, everybody I knew, including myself, was no longer able to make a living by producing content. So I also wanted to produce some kind of content as an object that had more presence as an object than simply an image online, mm-hmm. uh, because online uh, it would just be you know so what uh, a graph uh, you know a gra- a good picture with tap type over it, it's everywhere. It's on magazines. It's on 
movies with them, every shot in a TV show and so on. You know, every image on the internet is this. <laughs> Uh, so what? You know, but on a, on a stationary, as a stationary object sitting on a wall, that phrase, the wording I would select, I tried to like, I generally tried to, uh, for this type of work, to pick phrases that resonate with the image or, or the object itself in a way that it creates more, you know, more than one meaning, or uh, so that the depth would be multiplied, uh, rather than simply labeling something with a snappy, snarky phrase, and ha you know, turning a landscape painting into an editorial cartoon with one meaning. And I tried to really avoid that. Uh, because that really would just be like slapping type down thoughtlessly. Yeah. Uh, anybody, anybody could do that. Uh, trying to give it some resonance is, is a harder step. Um, and I was working in a field with a lot of background in it, like people with like Ed Ruscha and oh, there's just any no Jenny Holzer, there's any number of contemporary artists that were working with text and imagery. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was really thinking of Roucher, which who would actually paint his ship paintings, or, or at least have his assistants do it, and, uh, for all I know, uh, and then paint, paint a word across. Now, Roucher was like uh, working towards the end where he was treating letters as abstract shapes. Uh, it wasn't the meaning of the word necessarily as much as the appearance of it uh, as, as a actual graphic form. Uh, the one the one person to, that I was unaware of uh, at the time I was first doing these things in isolation uh, was, uh, was Wayne White who had also grabbed on to thrift store paintings. Uh, only he was doing extravagant, uh, you know, graphic approaches to his text and embedding it and integrating it into the imagery uh, one way or another. And, and I thought a good long time as to whether I was simply, had accidentally stepped into his footprint or not. And, and it kind of, made me go in a direction that was more stark, you know, and less decorative, uh, where I was actually imprinting something over it as a, as a secondary layer uh, to a completely wrung out image. And, and unlike uh, Wayne, uh, a lot of my pieces, uh, in fact, all my pieces are done on actual paintings. Uh, be it a factory painting or a Sunday painter. So, and Wayne tended to work on lithographic uh, framed framed uh, pieces, which was even more like of a manufactured uh, cookie cutter uh, production. Not not for Wayne, but for no. the original. Uh, so, you I know, we're you know like the stuff is is. It's close, but I kind of uh, feel and, and finally, you know, heard 
heard feedback from other people that uh, I wasn't simply, you know, uh, kind of riffing on on something he had already uh, explored. Which is funny because you guys, uh, kind of... for all I know, Wayne <laughs> virulently disagrees with it. So I, I admire uh, his work, but uh, you know, uh, nonetheless, I kept doing mine, and it, <laughs> it's only one of the things I do. So, so I had a show uh, last year of these pieces, and we, my gallery managed to sell most of them. So, uh, so good. <laughs> That's just important. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I'm continuing to do other other uh, art, uh, and uh, you know, have to continue to make my way. What What are you working on nowadays? Oh, uh, more paintings, basically. I've got yeah. a few commissions and uh, some drawings. Uh, not so much comics, although um, I have to finish up a piece for the last standalone Zap comic, which, while it was included in the $500, 25-pound uh, hardback set of the complete Zap comics, Fanographics um, <laughs> and... and, uh, and uh, a cartoonist decided that it was rather unfair to uh, and unrealistic to expect our <laughs> readers to pay $500 just to get the new issue. So uh, sometime shortly, uh, we're going to publish a standalone 80 or 88-page uh, zap, whatever the last issue is. And your the story you had in that one uh, was... It was a story as much as it was sketchbook over right. particular pages, and I'm really interested in that, um, especially given Zap, where it's more about draw, visceral, you know, really unleash all the shit you have built up. Uh, you're, you're felt really differently um, around what you're. Yeah, about. I have to say, I mean, I like I, I was uh, kind of doing this other work and, and not as focused on, on comics as an outlet. So, uh, But there's a, also a tradition of, uh, you know, just standalone art pieces going in, mm -hmm. of drawing and things. Uh, Rick Griffin would do that uh, on occasion. Uh, so, so that's what I went for. Uh, Gilbert and I had worked... Uh, <laughs> Gilbert sent me over that... Uh, Freak Brothers story, Phineas becomes a suicide bomber. But I could, and I started uh, d working on the art art for it, and uh, taking my cue from where Gilbert originally started, uh, I I used a jeweler's loop basically to draw microscopically detailed art, and I missed the deadline. Oh, it was Jesus. taking me so long. <laughs> So Gilbert hastily finished up the strip, but meanwhile I've been plugging away on it, and it's going to appear as the alternative version of the story in, in the standalone Zap 16, okay. which will be a paperback, uh, you know, 80-some page uh, book. 
around Christmas. With, or with a few pages of other material that somehow got left out of the Fantagraphics uh, collection. Not on purpose. It wasn't <laughs> our intention to create a, a slightly different uh, version that all collectors must have everything. Well, I'm sure if someone spent $500 on that giant book, they wouldn't mind spending another $10. No, on probably thing. not. Uh, and meanwhile, like somebody will be able to spend 20, 20 to $30 on the other one. And, yeah. You know, I, I saw a, a problem coming down the road before uh, with the last issue uh, because... Every everyone else was acting like you know. From my point of view, everyone was acting like you know. We didn't have a, a an anthology deal at the time or any of that. Uh, it was just supposed to be the next issue, and but everybody was turning in twelve page stories, you know, and and more. <laughs> and I and I counted up everything, and I said, we're already up to like sixty pages, and like. Only four people have turned in their comics, you know, and the comic book is only thirty-two pages. Come on, guys, you know what? What are we? What's up? And they said, "We don't care." So I went, "Oh well, uh, me too, I guess. I don't care either." Now this one um, marks the end of Apple. Uh, who can say? It seems yeah. likely. Um, you never know. Yeah. Uh, we don't know, uh, but um, you know, uh, from the time we signed the contract, uh, poor S. Clay Wilson uh, suffered a permanent and debilitating brain injury, and uh, has basically been reduced to uh, a forced early medical retirement, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Still alive, but uh, he's not going to be not drawing. Well. Not well. <clears throat> and Spain sadly passed away a couple of years ago mm -hmm. of uh, of uh, cancer. So, as far as I know, everyone else is in okay shape, but none of us are spring chickens. Yeah. Um. Two and those two especially were such uh, their work was yeah. such a force of nature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I miss both those guys. They they were not only uh, neighbors and colleagues, but dear friends. So, uh, you know, we used to all three of us used to just you know hang out uh, and and do art, you know, just to do it. So uh, I kind of miss that. Hopefully, oh well. <laughs> hopefully this. Well, hopefully this gives chance for folks um, to really kind of see that dynamic of of folks coming together to create such yeah. odd, unique, wonderful work. Yeah. Well, people still do that. Uh, you know, uh, it seems like you know that type of comic has had its run in that way. You know. Uh, being ephemera and being pop culture, uh, you know, it really appealed to all of us that uh, we could do this kind of mind-cracking stuff that sold for almost nothing, and and people could just roll it up like 
and put it in their back pocket and and read it till it was like came apart or got lost and then go and get another one mm-hmm. you know it, it really was uh, uh accessible uh culture uh, for a cheap price too uh, now, of course, uh, this stuff's codified into hardback books that you can't even carry up a flight of <laughs> stairs, and it, and it costs us uh, <laughs> a fortune, you know, so uh, that we're not going to have that impact on, on impressionable young uh, poverty-stricken minds, <laughs> like where it started from. Yeah. And that's okay, you know, uh, things change, uh, media just shifts form, uh, and people have to hop from uh, from media to media to to keep up with it. I mean, you know, I used to uh, do a lot of book covers and, and CD covers and DVD covers and movie posters and all that's being killed off by, like, online uh, access and streaming. Mm-hmm. So that packaging is, you know, no longer a requirement, and people's standards for graphics have dropped thanks to the ubiquity of, you know, phone apps that allow you to put like type over an image, for instance. <laughs> uh, <coughs> so without any skills or anything, so uh, people's expectations for graphic design have fallen by the wayside too. Uh, when you democratize something, you don't necessarily get better work, but you sure get a lot more of it. I almost want to say it's been something more populist to it all, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's okay. It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, but you can't just drag the past along and expect it to fit neatly into the new form. Uh, even the, you know, uh, in the our these comics were designed for a, a certain mindset uh, of, of reader, and and you know people have a slightly different uh, mindset. They're different they're, people. They're smoking different uh, weed now. Yeah, all that. Uh, so you know it's hard to say what what forms will end up in the future, but mm-hmm. certainly the shift is is pronounced, and and you can't. Ev- avoid it and and uh you know i tried to like keep up uh and and pay attention and and shift gears here and there uh but sometimes you know as as with these pictures i want people to just stand in front of something physically you actually it's like hearing live music you have to be in the room <laughs> to complete the circuit mm-hmm. <laughs> On the you know other hand, uh, the new media does different things. I, I you know first noticed this when I was a kid. Uh, uh, unlike a lot of kids, uh, I was an early reader, and and uh, uh, to the point where uh, while other ten-year-olds were busy, I don't know, uh, throwing stuff at frogs. Uh, and just sitting on, on the grass, I was in old moldy bookstores, uh, you know, pawing through old pulp, pulp magazines and stuff. And and by doing that, I became aware of earlier forms of media. And you know, well, these pulp magazines were great, mm-hmm. but there aren't any more pulp magazines. And why is that? 
you know, well, uh, economics, media, audience, all that stuff. Uh, so this is just more of that type of, of evolution of media format. Well, right now... You we're... yourself, I mean, you know, started out on a broadcast radio station, and now, uh, you know, the show can be heard on demand on the computer from or on a phone from anywhere at any time. For free. Yeah, for free, uh, without commercials. Yeah. Uh, so none of us are making any money anymore. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs> I think that's what I really miss. I mean, it's become so much harder to make a living by uh, producing this stuff. And, and to get really good at it or really intense, uh, no matter what year it is or what format it is, one really has to dedicate a lot of time to yeah. it. Uh, and so much just, of that, from my angle, so much of that is hustle, and I just can't be bothered. Yeah, I just, right. I just and, and of course, I mean, you know, it used to be if you bragged, sometimes you were righteously bragging yeah. about what you had done. But now, look, the brag <laughs> has assumed the forefront. Just mm -hmm. as the Church of the Subgenius predicted. <laughs> other hideous thing, all, all these pessimistic views of the future. Uh, well, you know, we were... Right. <laughs> Good going. We were prescient, you know, who would have thought? We thought we were just being smart asses, but no, it turns out we were predictively accurate. <laughs> oh, what world are we in now? Well, the same old world, uh, thank goodness. Um, I think I'm going to bring us to a close on that point. Uh, I don't know if it's a good point to close on. Uh, thank you so much, Paul, for joining well, me today. You're welcome. I've uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Well, it was, uh, it was a, good, a good good conversation. Uh, a reminder, folks, you can find Paul in the latest uh, Zap, which will be out, I'm not sure the date, fall, winter, uh, as well as the giant Zap hardback collection from my friends at Fanographics as well as uh, Anarchy Comics, which was just collected last year, or year before last? Yeah. And that's, that's from... out in the paperback collection, all four issues. From Last Cast, uh, was it? No, it was from, uh, let's see... Oh, uh... Gosh, here you go. PM Press. Okay. Uh, which is, a, I highly recommend checking out because it's a definite, um, different look at, uh, underground comics. Um, it's quite a neat, on a completely different spectrum from Zap. Like, if you picked up the two books. Um, oh, yeah. Um, you know, I did, a lot of my work tends to, you know, I go for a, a cultural jugular, but I tend not to use, uh, Oh, uh, old shock tactics that worked so well for formerly, uh, because, uh, you know, it just wasn't what I was after. Plus, uh, you have to keep switching gears mm -hmm. to make this stuff work. Step uh, it up. A lot of the older stuff in the 60s, uh, in a different world, you could rely on being crude uh, or shocking about, say, racism or sexism to, uh, flip people's heads backwards. Uh, but, you know, 
all that familiar now and 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 you know people actually have learned and moved on so those techniques aren't aren't nearly uh, uh in fact uh, they are they're mostly counterproductive at this point mm-hmm. no I'll agree completely um so thank you again uh Paul I'm going to sure. make sure I get your name Paul Mavredes Mavredes I'm really bad at it. Mavridis. I'm really bad. Oh, that's at okay. Names. I can barely produce my own name myself. Um, thank you so much, Paul. You're I've, quite welcome. 